You're listening to the Solution Focus Podcast, the official podcast of the UK Association for Solution Focus Practice. And I'm your host, Alan Parry. In this episode of the Solution Focus Podcast, my guest is Guy Shannon. Guy is the author of the book Solution Focus Practice. He's also recently stepped down from a four year stint as chair of the British Association of Social Workers. And he's now in private practice himself as a solution focused practitioner at Guy Shannon Associates at sfpractice.co.uk. So, a big welcome to Guy Shannon. Hello, Guy. Thanks for coming on to the show. It's good to have you. Hello, Alan. It's a pleasure. Thanks for uh, thanks for the invite. Before we get going, I mean, I, what I want you to do today is just basically talk us through um, what a solution-focused session looks like as a refresher for those who are who are doing it anyway, but also, more importantly, perhaps as an introduction to um, to people who are coming to solution-focused practice for the first time and are curious about what it looks like. Sure. Yeah. That's fine. So give us a little bit of context about yourself first, Guy, before we get going. Um, right, okay. Well, I'm, uh, I suppose in this context, I'm a solution-focused practitioner and trainer. And um, my original uh, training as a professional was in social work. So I, I trained as a social worker ooh, many, many years ago now. And then it was while I was doing social work that I was first trained myself in in solution-focused brief therapy, the course was called, and many of us have long since called it solution-focused practice, um, really because it's an approach that can be used by by anybody whose um, whose job includes talking with somebody else to help them to make things better in their life in some way. And so that's not just therapists, but um, social workers and doctors and teachers and family support workers and coaches and drug and alcohol counsellors, and so on and so on and so on. So um, so I was a social worker, and that's when I started using the approach. And then I um, I just started using solution-focused practice more and more, and was lucky enough to get a job which um, involved specialising in the approach, working with families. And it's when I was doing that job that I started teaching other people how to use the approach. And that's pretty much what I do, what I do now. So what would you say is distinctive about solution-focused practice in terms of the philosophy? Yeah, in terms of the philosophy. Um, there's probably a number of things, really, Alan, and, and maybe some of those things I'll, I'll, I'll say now, you know, it might share with other approaches, but it's when the, they all come together as a whole that I think makes solution-focused distinctive. Um, I mean, one of those is... Um, it's an assumption that people have got the resources that they need, really, um, to make the changes they want to make, and also that people are, are already making changes. I think this, this, there's a connection with Buddhism. Um, there's, a, there's, there's an assumption that change is always happening. Mm. And so one aspect of so a solution-focused take on that is that change, change towards what people want is always happening. It doesn't mean that it's just one way, you know. So when we see people, we know people have difficulties. That's why many of us in the roles we have see people. Um, so sometimes, you know, things are changing in a sense for the worse as well. Um, but there's always some change happening in the direction that the person wants. That's a really fundamental assumption. Okay. That's, so – yeah. So in terms of a session, in terms of teasing those changes out, yeah. if, if someone were to come and, and have a session with yourself or another solution-focused practitioner, once the housekeeping of you know all the usual kind of confidentiality stuff is out of the way and explaining how all that works, how, how, would, the, how would the session itself actually begin? Well, in terms of a first meeting, which is getting some solution-focused work underway, um, the really essential way thing to do at the beginning is to establish what the direction is or what the direction um, the work will go in or is intended to go in. And that direction will be established by the client um, in response to a question such as, what are your best hopes from coming, from coming here, from talking with me? And so 
the solution focused worker is, to, is orientating the the client and the session and themselves towards the future towards something that's hoped for by the client and so and, and when the client is able to articulate something um and often in very general terms, it's often helpful for the direction to be established by, by some general sort of hoped-for outcome of the client, such as being able to get on with their life better or um, be, just feeling happier and being more able to do the things they want to do. And why would you ask that kind of question rather than, say, what traditionally happens, say, in a therapy setting, which is, you know, what's the problem that's brought you here today? Well, that's a good question. Um, because the, the whole thrust of solution-focused practice is is forwards. There's a sort of forward momentum to the approach. I mean, that question that you just suggested that that, that, that might be asked traditionally, what's brought you here today? I mean, that was asked in the early stages, in the early days of solution-focused practice. And those brilliant people, Steve DeShazer and Intu Kimberg and their colleagues, um, were asking the clients what the problems were they came with initially. And, and how they started to develop solution-focused is when they they notice they observe that whatever the problems the person came with there was always exceptions to the problem there were always times when it wasn't happening mm. it's happening less severely or, or less frequently even if those times were very small and hard to spot but somehow I think these people Steve DeShazer and Intu Kimberg they had this this way of noticing these these small what, what in a sense were seeds of the solution and so they did ask about the problem and they listened for exceptions to the problem. And then as the approach developed, um, there was greater attention paid to, to the future. Um, there's a famous question that the, 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 the workers in Milwaukee, Stephen Inso and colleagues were from Milwaukee, this famous question, the miracle question, um, which initially was was a goal setting question, so it was it was devised to help the to help establish what the clients wanted from the therapy, and, um, and and the idea being if you didn't establish what the clients wanted, how they would know the therapy had 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 got them to where they wanted it to get them to, it could in theory go on forever. So the importance of setting goals was uh, was sort of added into the approach, and um, and then over time it was seen that. Um, in a sense, the speediest way to do therapy was to start off with with the goals, with the future, with what was wanted. Um, because the, so the whole idea was to um, to help the client to achieve what they wanted from the therapy. Well, let's start with what they want, rather than starting with what the problem is and then working from there. So I think in, in part, um, th this is just part of the story. I think Alan really, but I think in part it was. Um, seen as just a more direct way in to establish what the client wanted. Yeah, because I've, I've noticed as well that when you get into problems, people actually do become much more stuck than when we start to talk in terms of what their best hopes are and what the future is that they're wanting to create. Yeah, yeah. Um, people can get stuck, you're right. And, and, the, and what happens when you start off with what the person wants, what the person hopes for, is that you then establish this forward movement from the outset. Mm. And so yeah, so now I think the approach is very much characterized now, the way it's developed, by always having this movement in it. And so, so starting off with the problem and then asking about exceptions to the problem, that was, the, I think, the way into the approach. Um, but but more, more movement, I think, um, um, has been injected into the approach with, with the shift from looking at exceptions to the problem to looking at instances of what the client's wanting. Okay, so, well, before we, before we unpack instances, just to kind of have a quick recap. So at the very beginning of the session, the client would come in and you would ask them about their best hopes rather than, say, a problem. And then what would happen is once they've chosen a direction of travel, like I want to get my life back on track or, or was one of the examples that you gave, you'd then move on to the miracle question you said. Um, yeah, sure. sure. Or, or perhaps a simplified, a simplified version of that. Okay, tell us a bit more about the miracle question. For, for those who've never encountered this idea before, what, what actually is it? So if I'm in a therapy room with you, I've just yeah. told you what my broad best hopes are. And you then you then ask me a question. Could you give us an example of, of the question and, and how it sounds like? 
Sure, sure. So, okay. So imagine, so as you say, imagine that I've asked you what your best hopes were, and you've said, you know, your life's gone a bit sort of all right, and your hopes are to get your life back on track. Yeah. So that's the starting point. That's the first part of the process. That's the starting point. And that's given a forward direction to the conversation, moving towards your life getting back on track. So how I, how I would then use the uh, the miracle question is I'd, I'd say this. Um, so, well, just imagine, Alan, just imagine that when you go to bed tonight and go to sleep, that while, that while you're asleep, <clears throat> excuse me, a miracle happens. And the miracle is that your life's back on track. It's happened just like that while you're asleep. That's the miracle. Yeah. The thing is, you don't know the miracle's happened because it happened while you're asleep. So when you wake up tomorrow morning, what's the very first thing you would notice that would tell you that this miracle's happened and your life is back on track? What's the first thing you'd notice about yourself that would start to tell you that? Okay, so we're taking them, it's kind of like time hopping them to a place where the thing that they say that they, that they want is actually realised. Exactly. You're time hopping them into tomorrow. Um, yeah. So, and, and, and that's quite important. That the, So we're going to help the client describe what we call their preferred future. There's a little bit of shorthand for a solution-focused practitioner. The future in which the client has realised their hopes, their hopes from the work have been realised. So in your case here, the future in which your life is back on track. It's quite an immediate future, a future happening tomorrow morning. And that helps to make it connected to where the client is now. Right. So it's not some distant sort of dream, yeah. uh, you know, a year's hence, but tomorrow. It's very connected. And so you can help the client. That helps the client to be able to associate these differences to their current routine, to their current life. And so it can help it become a very realistic and rich description by making it a t- by making the future as just as far as tomorrow. And how do, how do we make that? How do we turn that? Because that's like the starting point for that chunk of the session, I suppose, isn't it? How would a solution-focused practitioner then ensure that it was a rich description? Um, well, in, in a narrow way, really, by, by the questions that they ask, by the types of questions they ask. Um, let's, let's just give you a few examples. So, um, well, I mean, you've got to you, firstly, you, you've got to be, you've got to expect the answer. I don't know. <laughs> okay. And, uh, because these these are tough questions. Yeah. I think asking people about the future. In fact, any solution focused question can be a tough question. So, practitioners, you've got to be expecting the answer. I don't know, and not be sort of thrown off by it. It can often mean that's a, that's an unusual question. I have to think about that. Yeah. So we find ways of helping people to to think of answers. And also to, you know, to, to be able to describe the differences in, in a rich way. And so some examples are to help the client to, to think of concrete actual times and places where these differences will show up. And, and that's one reason why asking them about first thing tomorrow morning when they wake up is, is immediately helpful. Because that's a very concrete time and place where the person wakes up the next morning. So I, I might sometimes, if the person says, I don't know, I might sometimes follow up by, by asking, well, well, what time would you wake up? Well, if this miracle's happened, your life's back on track, you know, what time would you wake up tomorrow? Well, maybe about seven o'clock. Okay, so you wake up seven o'clock and you, so you're at home tonight, you're, yeah, yeah. And so you're waking up in your, you know, at home tomorrow and, and seven o'clock in the morning. What's the very first thing you'd notice about yourself that would tell you this miracle is starting to happen? And so you're inviting the person to think of themselves in actual times and places, and they might say, well, um, you know, I wouldn't – people often will t- talk about what they wouldn't, what they would notice not happening, which okay. is really yeah. – really example of the client thinking about the problem still. So here's another little tip coming up. Um, the person says, well, I wouldn't feel like staying in bed all day. Um, in a sense, the client is saying part of my problem now is I feel like staying in bed all day all the time. And so all the work – all I would do then is say, well, what would you feel like doing instead? Mm. Life was back on track. Well, um, so you just ask about a question, typically with the word instead inside it. Yeah. People to describe what, what would be happening rather than what would stop happening. Um, and then you help them to go into really small detail. Well, I'd, um, I guess I'd feel like getting out of bed and doing something. And here's another little tip coming up. So, okay, so what's the very first thing you would do if you, got up to, if, if you woke up tomorrow and you felt your life was on track and you felt like doing something? 
What's the very first thing you would do? So you often you invite people to think about the first thing, the first small signs. And that's a signal to the client that you're asking about small things. It's also a signal that you, you, you're likely to be interested in the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So you can help. The, there's a nice structure to these descriptions, just helping someone to tell a story of their day from waking up onwards. In, in this case, with their life now being back on track. And what do you think the importance is of the client who's, who's come in possibly feeling stuck in a problem to very quickly having gone to a place where they've, they've given this very rich, granular description of the life they actually want? I think in, in many cases, I suspect that the client will be talking, this will be the client will experience themselves talking and thinking quite differently. Than they have been talking. If if, the, if a person's come to see a, you know a helping professional because their life's stuck in some way, it's unlikely they're sort of thinking and talking about their life moving forward. That's part. I guess that's part of the picture of being stuck. And so, just being able, just hearing themselves talk in this way, is likely to be a different experience. And that in itself could well be useful. And then I think being encouraged to talk about small differences can help these can help the uh, differences seem more achievable. Mm. So, um, well, the first thing I'd do is I'd get, you know I'd get a bit of breakfast, I suppose. And then you help people to to dwell on these differences. So, what would you notice about yourself while you were having breakfast if your life was back on track? And you also bring other people into the descriptions. So, and who else would notice tomorrow that your life was back on track? Now, who, and can I ask you, who else is around in the morning? You know, do you, well, my partner. And, uh, okay, so how would your partner know your, back was, your life was back on track? And there's a real richness to helping people see themselves through the eyes of others, especially significant others. Um, although as the as the day goes on and the description unfolds, um, useful to bring in a whole range of people, and uh, you know, and then so what's the next thing you would do tomorrow morning? Well, I would take the dog for a walk. Okay, and what would passers-by notice about you if they noticed a person who was, you know, walking the dog whose life was on track? And then you you, see, you can see a picture building up, um, the richness of which is enhanced by all these different perspectives coming into play. And all this, and this is likely, I think, to be a different experience for the client, and will conjure up different possibilities um, of of change happening, and different ways, different ideas can coming into their head, getting their life back on track already. And also, vitally, the more small detail you elicit in this way, the more chance they will also be able to hit on things that they're already doing. Okay, and that brings us to the instances that you mentioned a moment ago, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So what's an instance? What's an instance? Yeah, it's a, I suppose it's become a little bit of jargon in a way. It's an everyday word. But in, in solution focus work, it's really referring to any bits of this so-called preferred future that are happening already. You know, So, so, um, so instances of that happening already. Um, so imagine over the, the description of breakfast tomorrow morning, the person had said, um, you know, my partner would notice me, um, you know, smiling a bit more, smiling a bit and maybe having a chat. Well, actually, that happened a bit yesterday morning. Now I think about it. Mm. So that would be a, you know, a typical instance of a preferred future. Um, while the person is describing their preferred future, noticing that bits of it are happening already. Because it, it's incredibly encouraging to hear and motivating for the client, because that will be accompanied by a realisation that they're already doing some of what they hope to be doing. And they're already able to do what they, some of what they hope to be doing, uh, which is a signal to them, I think, and to the worker about what, what they'll be able to do in the future. And what do you notice in the client when they make those kind of realizations that oh, actually, this is this is already happening to some extent? Oh, that's an interesting one because I guess you notice different things. There's not a standard reaction to that, and um, so and, and, and quite often I think clients don't really notice them, and um, or almost brush them off. And I, and I notice this when I'm, you know, uh, people are talking about the preferred future. Um, and they might mention something in passing. Well, that happens already. Almost brush it off as if it's not very important. Um, or sometimes perhaps don't even notice they've said it. And I think this is part of the worker's job is to notice these things and to become interested in them and to ask questions about them. 
And then that, I think, is going to have an effect on what the, on the significance the client gives them. So just to give an example um, of somebody I was working with who was talking about being more assertive with her husband. Who who works at, who works nights and phones her in the in the night and she'd rather he didn't because it, she needs to sleep and she's saying in you know in the in the preferred future I'd be more assertive with my husband and I'd I'd, I'd I'd ask him please you know can you not phone me and don't phone me at night because I need my sleep because when I was and she went on to say because when I was depressed I couldn't sleep it's only recently I've started to sleep well and I want to continue sleeping well and and then she continued talking about the preferred future. But she just dropped in this comment of recently I've started to sleep well. And it wasn't clear from the way she said it in her reaction that this, you know, she'd really given that much attention. So so our job then really is as solution focused practitioners is to spot these these instances, spot these exceptions and really amplify them so that the client does notice them and does does potentially see their significance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes, of course, a client will um, could be say, "Yes, that happens already," and become quite excited and spot it themselves. But I, I think it, you know, maybe it's more common that they don't, and the worker really has to spot them. Uh, there's a nice, there's a nice uh, phrase for this, which was coined by Eve Lipchick. So Eve Lipchick was one of the original uh, group of therapists in Milwaukee in the states who developed the approach, and she wrote an article called "Interviewing with a Constructive Ear." And this is a very nice notion of having a constructive ear. So we talk about listening with a constructive ear. And um, so it's training our ears to spot, to notice and spot um, all manner of things, actually. Um, exceptions to problems, instances of the preferred future, um, abilities of the client, the way they're managing to deal with and cope with problems and uh, listening out for what they want to be different as well. So all the things that the solution-focused person, practitioner, wants to ask about um, you start to notice these things happening with your constructive ear. And certainly hearing little instances of the preferred future, one of that future is being described is a big part of that. Okay, so we're kind of we're probably halfway through the session at this point because we've we've asked what their best hopes are, so we've got a forward direction of travel. We've we've taken them through um, the miracle question, as you described it, where we're getting a very granular, detailed description, a blueprint, really, of what they want their life to be like, should their best hopes be realized. We've been amplifying some of the instances where that's already happening, or even noticing some exceptions where the, the problem isn't there. What, what happens next in terms of a solution-focused session? So, so moving forward, then, once you've got a forward direction for the approach... Um, as we you know, established at the start of a piece of work, there's really two major areas of interest, two major groups of questions, the future focus and the progress focus. And the progress focus includes searching for in so-called instances. And so you, uh, a the, using a scale, a 0 to 10 scale, is just a really good way to punctuate a shift from future to progress. So I'd, 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 I'd say to the client something like this. Um, so, so think of a scale between 0 and 10, where 10 is, your life's back on track. Your life's on track the way you want it to be. And, and I might then summarize what they've been describing happening tomorrow if their life was back on track. It'd be a nice way to sort of, you know, to, to summarize the, the client's words and description. Yeah. That's 10. That's 10 on the scale. 0 is uh, the furthest away you've been from that. Or I might say in this case, when your life was most off track or something like that. So it's the, it's the worst point in a sense. Where are you now on that scale? Where are you now? And assuming the client is above zero, which they would usually be, I would expect, not, not, not always, and perhaps we can come back to that. If you get an answer above zero and three, seems to be quite a common answer. So let's just imagine the client said three. Something very interesting has just happened there. You've discovered, and the client's discovered, I guess, by thinking about it, that they're better than zero. There's something happening. There's some progress happening already. And so I'm asking for a number in this case. Not as I'm not assessing the client. I guess the client is assessing, in a sense, their own progress towards what they want. But I'm asking for a number so as a peg to hang lots of potentially useful questions on. And the questions will be focused on the difference between three and zero. There's something better going on. There's some progress going on. So let's help the client talk about that. 
Simple as that, really. And, um, and here, again, we can break down these questions into sort of two groups of questions. Um, questions about three itself uh, and help the client to describe what is better. And uh, I would go into that by something like, so what tells you? What tells you you're at three and not, and not zero? What, what, what's different? What are you noting different about yourself? I mean, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't ask all these questions at the same moment, but the, the range of questions would include, you know, what's different about yourself now you're at three and not zero? What are you doing differently, thinking differently, feeling differently? Who else has noticed differences about you since you've been at three and not at zero? So you're always making this comparison between where they are now and zero because that really helps them to think about that progress that they've been making, that they are making. Yeah, a couple of things um, sprout up for me there as you're speaking, Guy. Like the, the first one there is those questions. They're, they are actually very similar to the questions you were asking when you were eliciting the miracle question. Um, like they're asking, you know, what are you doing? You know, who else noticed? They're kind of similar, aren't they, but from a different vantage point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they're, they're, they're both sets of questions that are inviting description by the client. And... Um, which is also how the approach is developed, really, to be more and more focused on help, just eliciting, helping the client to describe in the future what they would notice about themselves, you know, if they were, if their hopes had been realised. Um, and in the present and perhaps the past, and typically recent past, what they are noticing in terms of progress that is being made towards those hopes being realised. So in both cases, you're right, it's description. It's description rather than questions such as how could you make these, how could you get these changes to happen? How could you get there? What could you do in order to achieve your hopes? So that's the sort of trying to a, a, a trying to solve it question. Rather than that, we're asking description questions in the future or in the, the present or the past. And so it's a question of yeah, changing the tense of the question really. So you're shifting from what would you notice tomorrow morning to what are you noticing about yourself now that you're at three and not zero. So, yeah, and, and, and that bit as well is the other thing that resonates with me, like what tells you that you're at three rather than zero? The comparison with zero is really important, isn't it, in terms of solution-focused practice? Because let's say somebody said they were a two or a three. If you simply asked them why they thought they were a two or a three, if they viewed that as a low score, they'd, they would typically get glum at that point and start talking about problems again. Whereas when you... I think it's quite an important thing that when you compare it to zero, it's like, oh, wow, yeah, what makes you a three, say, rather than a zero? That actually infuses them with a lot of optimism. And people, people usually express, I've noticed anyway, a certain surprise at yeah. looking at that as a, as a good thing. And it, it's, a, it's an important reframe. Crucial, Alan, you're right, yeah. And, and, they, and that surprise is maybe similar to an observation I made few minutes ago that sometimes people don't notice instances of the, of the preferred future don't even realize they've said it you know recently i've started to sleep well for example and people don't often realize that they are making progress and this is one of the great advantages or the great benefits of the scale is that i think people often come to see us feeling stuck and um feeling that they're not, they're not making any movement or progress and when you when you introduce the scale people tend to realise or find out or discover that they are making progress, which can be very encouraging indeed, especially when the worker follows up with the questions, as you've said, the comparisons to zero. So, so you always feel that you're on the move in a solution-focused conversation. And another important word, as well as movement and connected to it, is the word difference. And uh, so we're interested in differences. Um, and this also helps people to realise and to think about themselves as, as not stuck what's different about you now you're at three compared to when you were at zero um so yeah the only way we can notice what we're doing and what we're thinking and feeling and to, and, and uh, the only way we could notice the meaning of those things is by comparison points um yeah so, and i said at the, uh, when i started talking alan about um questions that you hang on the peg of three i said there was two major groups of questions yeah so, We've been focusing on the description questions. What tells you it's three and not zero? And then all the, the many questions that you can ask along those lines. The other group of questions are around how come that's happened? But really focusing on the client's own agency. So, um, and how have you managed to get these things to happen? How have you done that? And this is, you, I, I would 
um, almost call this a classic solution-focused question. It's really very much how the approach got started. When, you know, when 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 the Milwaukee workers focused on exceptions, they became very interested in how did you do that? How did you get that to happen? And what do you think is the importance of that particular question to say how did you make that happen? Uh, there's a wonderful assumption in the question how did you do that because you're assuming the clients. Just to be a bit technical here, you're assuming the client's got agency, mm. but you're assuming the client is someone who's able to make changes in their lives. Um, people might feel, um, well, it just happened, you know, or it was just an accident, or or uh, it's because I went to the doctor and I got some pills, or uh, my, somebody else helped me to do it. And, um, you know, some of those things all could well be the case, you know, and... And the solution-focused worker would assume the person has got some part to play in it themselves, has had some part to play themselves. And the question, how did you do that, just nice and simply conveys that assumption to the client. You know, I'm interested in your part in that, you know. So, well, because I've been taking antidepressants or because I've got these pills, okay, so so, so, so the pills have helped. And, and what have you done that's helped? And, um, or, or, and, and what have you done that's helped to make the medication work? You know, so there's a whole manner of ways you can follow up when clients might sort of give the credit to somebody else or to some medication or the doctor or whatever. But it's important that the worker does follow up, though, and to continue to encourage and to help the client, in a sense, take their own share of the credit. Yeah, so you're inviting them really to reflect on their own resources and their own strategies that they've already developed themselves independently of coming to therapy or to see a, a helper or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I think, again, this, going back to your question originally, Alan, about the philosophy of the approach, and uh, I think it very much rests on um, a search with the client, a focus on the client's own way or own ways of, of doing things or the client's own ways of making progress. So this is, you know, hence the importance of the assumption the solution focus worker focus worker makes. The client has got ways of making progress. And so the question, how did you do that? Um, is, is starting to elicit those ways. So, and I think this is also what can make the approach effective quite briefly in comparison to other approaches, because the client doesn't become reliant on um, ways that the worker is introducing to them to make progress. They're, they're, they're being focused on their own ways of making progress um, and amplifying those ways, increasing those ways, doing more of those things. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so it's, it's naturally empowering in that sense, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. Now, you were talking about movement before, and we, we talked about the comparison between three and zero. So what happens on those rare occasions where you ask the scaling question and the client says, actually, I'm at a zero? Where, where does the worker go with that? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, first and foremost, I think where the worker, the worker needs to hear that, really. And, um, and then because the person's got to feel they're heard. I, mean, I, I, I believe that... Um, you know, people on the receiving end of help have have said that the most important thing for them is listening. You know, when people have been asked, mm. what's the most important thing for you that your helping person does? You know, way at the top of the list is listening. So if that's the most important thing, listening to people, people need to, to know that they've been listened to. And if someone tells you I'm at naught, what they're, what they're saying to you is that this is the worst. You know, this feels awful. Yeah. And, um, you know, and they, maybe they'll follow up and I'm at naught because, and they'll tell you about their difficulties. So first and foremost, you need to listen and to show that you've listened. So you need to say something back to the person. You need to acknowledge the scale of their difficulty. So you need to listen and acknowledge in solution-focused practice. So some, oh, that sounds like really tough. You're going through a really tough time. There wouldn't be a full stop after such an acknowledgement. There'd be a comma, and then you you can add a question. That sounds like God. That's you know things are really tough for you at the moment. Uh, how are you managing to keep going? What have you done that's helped you to survive this? Um, or you know um, how how can we not given up hope? Um, just fu fundamental assumption that a solution focused worker makes, in my view, is that if a person is 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 come to talk to you, or has let you into their home to talk to you, or is just talking with you, knowing that you're a helping person, they must be doing that for a reason, and they must have some hope. Because if they didn't, some hope of something better happening for them. Because if they didn't, why would they bother talking to you? So, and that's 
really crucial to have that assumption in your head when you're working with a person that says no, because that person has not given up hope, because otherwise they wouldn't be sitting there saying no to you, they'd be not talking to you. So, so I'd listen, I'd acknowledge, and I'd ask what we call coping questions. So these questions I just suggested, how have you managed to keep going? That They're known as coping questions in, in the literature. Okay. And, and that would be my bedrock, I think, of response. And then, from, and then you take it very slowly, but based on the idea that the person will have must have hope because they're talking with you, you could start to be gently curious about. So, how would you know that? How would you know things were creeping up a little bit? You know, and I might not, How would you know things were at one or perhaps a half or even just 0.1 on the scale? Um, so you can get, go into the future, but go slowly and go in small ways and go into the past. So, so when I can hear things are really difficult at the moment, when things were were most, you know, were, you know, were, were slightly better than this, or, you know, when were things slightly more hopeful for you? Oh, two weeks ago. So, what were you doing differently then? So you can go into the future, you can go into the past, um, but not, but not rushing it. You've got to go at the client's pace. So you'd you'd basically hear the zero rather than fight the zero. You'd acknowledge where they're at. And you would ask them questions around how are they able to cope, not give up, keep going. And I'm yeah. presuming that you ask those sorts of questions because, once again, it it leads people to reflect on their resources and strategy in just the same way as someone who said a three or a four or a five would do. Yeah, it's just, yeah absolutely. It's the same principles all the time, really. And, um, and there's, really, there's a great phrase by a guy called Bill O'Hanlon, um, certainly who I got it from, um, acknowledgement and possibility. A very useful way of thinking is sort of both and thinking. I think Bill, o, Bill, Bill O'Hanlon might call it inclusive thinking, that, problems, that both problems can be happening and the person can be getting through them. You know, both things are awful and the person's not given up hope. So you keep this both and notion in your head. It, it will it, 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 it will lead you into questions such as how have you not given up? And, um, and, and, and Bill encourages us to try and have a foot in both camps simultaneously, a foot in acknowledgement. So things are really tough here at the moment and a foot in possibility. And even just adding those three words at the moment already mm. puts your foot in the possibility camp because at the moment suggests it's, you know, it, it's, you know, it's changeable. And then you can add to the possibility with a question such as, how have you managed to keep going? And again, I think this could, this could mean that the person starts to think differently about themselves. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be at all surprised to get to hear the answer. I don't know. I don't know how I've kept going in response. But you don't know what differences in the way the person's thinking about themselves might be accompanying that. You know, someone who's come to see you feeling at their wits end at their lowest point, you know, just feeling zero on the scale, isn't the person that's coming to see you thinking that they're managing to keep going with their life in some way? So how are you managing to keep going? Well, couple, a tough, tough question to answer specifically, but just hearing the question, I think, can help somebody to think differently. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an inherently hopeful, empowering question, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So you, you started to touch there, Guy, on... <clears throat> excuse me. You started to touch there on... Um, what a better future would look like. Um, so how do you handle that part of the session where, where you start inviting the client to, to imagine what things would look like if they were a little bit better? Well, I mean, bearing in mind that that's, and we're talking about a typical first session here, first meeting. Yeah. But bearing in mind that that's, that's been a big chunk of the session already, of course, when you imagine the person to, invite the person to imagine they've woken up tomorrow and having achieved their hopes. So the first part of the session is describing the, the preferred future, the sense of the preferred future is they're all the way there. They've got there, their life is back on track, which you then define as 10 on the scale. So yeah, so then having shifted the focus to the progress being made towards that already with the scale, yeah, you can then use the scale to, to, to return to the future, to return to the client, but in a much smaller way. Um, and you know, a very useful question is just to ask about one point up the scale. So uh, this person who's at three, um, you can you could ask. So, so how would you know you were at a four? Um, what what would tell you that you just move one point up the scale? Um, and so, the, and there's you know, this can be really useful to re, just to end the session perhaps in a future focus, um, and to just to encourage the sense of small differences. So I talked in the asking about the preferred future. 
about the usefulness of asking things like, what's the very first thing you would notice about yourself? What's the, what's the first small sign? Um, so you help the person to think small. So when you're going, you can, at the end of a session, having established progress being made already, go back to thinking small. And um, yeah, a person can perhaps leave the session with a sense that they can be looking out for small differences and not have to imagine the whole preferred future that they've described earlier. So uh, it's interesting how you've asked that question, actually, because you've you've gone with that little t- time jump again. You know, you've asked people to imagine that they were already in that place where they were one point higher in the scale and, and just share what they would notice, what they were doing differently or whatever. What you didn't do is to say, so what would you do to get there? You, you've actually put them in that place and asked them to reflect on being in that place rather than demanded a set of actions and strategies to get there in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. There's, I mean, I think there's different ways of doing solution-focused practice. And uh, I mean, what I've been setting out here, uh, Alan, is, uh, is perhaps ultimately, or not ultimately, but uh, a very non-instrumental approach, an approach where the worker is not trying to get, it's not looking to establish, it's not trying to get the client to change, it's not, it's not trying to work out how the client should change. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a much more neutral approach, non-instrumental, not trying to make change happen. And it's, it's trying to allow the description of possibilities. Um, and um, we want, so, so a danger with asking a question such as, what do you need to do to move from three to four, uh, which is trying to sort of nail down, you know, mm-hmm. What, what needs to be done is trying to solve it. I think we mentioned this earlier. And um, the, that's a very tough question, actually. And, and, and one, um, because the person's probably tried all sorts of things already um, before they've come to see you. And if the person's come to see you feeling stuck, I think that's a question that can invite the stuckness to come back in. So what do you need to do to move to one point up the scale? Uh, I don't I have no idea. You know, <laughs> that's why I've come to see you. Uh, can you tell me what could I do? You know, mm. so by asking what you need to do, you can you can reinvite stuckness back in, and also uh, you can get stuck yourself because I think it'd be quite reasonable at that point for the client to ask you, as you know, they think, well, I thought you were the expert in this sort of stuff. Can't you tell me what I can do? <laughs> And so it's sort of changing the approach to sort of advice giving or problem solving or, as you say, sort of target setting and action planning. So these things, I think, are all you know very useful and important in, in certain contexts. But the context of a solution-focused conversation is, is, is different. You're trying to invite possibilities and shift from stuckness to movement, possible movement. And so a question such as, how would, how would you know you were at one point? What, what might you notice? Mm. Dropping, use the word might as well. What, and it, all these questions, sort of, they're softer. That they're questions that are less likely to get people stuck, and they're more likely to invite possibilities, which gives people more choices of action later. So, what might you notice if you're one point higher at the scale? What else might you notice, and who else might notice that? And what else? And so, you're not trying to nail anything down. You're not trying to sort of suggest what the person must do once they leave the session. Um, you're just helping them to just yeah, um, conjure up and throw up a range of possibilities. And to leave the session, I think, with a sense of possibility that things can change. And then working out how to make things change, that's for the client to do later. Yeah, it's interesting because I hear therapists from other modalities and they, they talk sometimes about a client is resistant but there's nothing to resist here, is there? Because it's just all inviting possibility, and, and it's very client-led. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good point to associate resistance with this. I suppose. I suppose uh, resistance might. It might appear that a client's being resistant if and when a worker is making suggestions of what the client could do. Because the client could then, the clients then really got to d- make some decisions or or consider those suggestions. And if a client doesn't automatically say, "Oh yes, I'll do that," that's a good idea. Um, anything else might seem like resistance, <laughs> where it would possibly just simply being the client reasonably thinking, "I'll have to think about that one." And um, so, because we're not trying to get the client to do anything or even suggest they do anything, um, there's not much for them to resist. You're right. So, what happens when they when they kind of come back for the second session how would a second session begin well the second session would typically begin with the question so what's better what's what's been better since we last met and um so you, so you start with the progress focus 
I was saying earlier, Alan, that with within or um, sort of yeah within this overall direction, within the overall direction towards the client's hoped for outcome. So let's stick with this example of a client who wants their life to be back on track. Um, within the overall direction, there's two major groups of questions the future focus questions and the progress focus questions. And typically in the first session, you'd state you'd start with the future and then you'd go to progress. In a follow-up session, you ask the same sorts of questions, you just change the order over. So you start with progress and you'll go back to the future later in the session. So and a nice way to start with progress is just by asking, so what's better? What's been better since, since you last met? Um, yeah, and you go from there. I mean, the, 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 the person might say nothing at first. They, they might struggle to think. And, and, and all the time, the solution-focused practitioner is just asking questions that help the person to think. Um, if, 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 if the person says nothing is worse, then my starting point would be very similar to if they'd said naught on the scale in the first session. You know, I'd be listening, acknowledging. I'd be listening with a constructive ear. So if you know, listening for any exceptions, listening for bits of times when things were better, asking coping questions and so on and so forth, and start to amplify change. Um, so when you hear things that are signs of progress, um, how have you done that? You know, tell me more about that. So how did you get that to happen? Uh, what difference did that make? Who else, is, who else noticed that? What did they notice about you? So all those descriptive questions you would ask with the scale in the first session, you can ask to follow up answers from the client to what's better. And one, one thing that people might notice, because you've you basically described there the first session and then how to begin the sessions that follow on from that. So you've kind of encapsulated the whole process. And what people might notice, especially if they've not encountered solution focus before, is that at no point in that in that um, description has there been any advice from the therapist? You've simply facilitated a process rather than, say, imposed any kind of theoretical model upon the client or any of your own views about the client onto the session. Yeah, that's, yeah, sure. So you facilitate a process. Yeah, that's that, that's a good way of putting it. And uh, I mean, so there is, I mean, you know, the, uh, the the theoretical model is the is the process really. And so, you know, you want, so we, we try and become as good as we can at using, using the solution focus process and listening to the client and asking questions within that process, you know, about what the client wants and progress towards it. All the content really should be coming from the client and the, the, and the solution focus worker um, is, as you say, facilitating the process. So, so giving advice will be content coming from the worker, I think, in terms of what the client should do. Um, and I said earlier that the you know, one of the main philosophies of the approach or sort of basic assumptions is that it's about the client finding their own way or building on the client's own ways of getting there, of making progress. Um, so once the worker starts to give advice, then you're coming up with your ways as the worker. Um, we, we didn't talk about ending the session before. Oh yeah, so, so, yeah. So how would you end the session? Good point. So, well, just stop. Well, I mean, seriously, you, you could just um, just ask your last question, hear the last answer, and say, "Well, I think we're done for today." And um, and the only thing I might say at the end of a session, um, I mean. I, I mean I, um, I might summarise um, some of what the client has said um, as a way of rounding things off, as a way of showing that I've been listening, and maybe as a way of reinforcing, you know, some of the progress the person's been talking about. And so, as the session comes to an end, it might be the last one. So I would then say to the client, "That's the session for today. I'd be very happy to see you again." Uh, and then, if the client wants to make another appointment make the appointment, and then I might say, well, just in between now and when you come back to see me again, um, just a suggestion for you. Just notice any signs of progress. Or just notice any times when you're one point up the scale, which I would call a noticing suggestion. And, and, and that's, that's, that's just one type of task that the original solution-focused therapist would give. And um, I might on occasion say that, but I'd be more likely just to briefly summarise, perhaps, ask if the client wants to meet again, and then make another appointment. Yeah. One of the things I do at the end of a session, actually, is I, I'll invite the client to say something. I'll say something like, you know, we spent the last hour together. What, are, what have you learned from listening to yourself? What are your kind of key insights? And then that's a, that I find is a, 
is a really nice way to end a session as well. And it gets them to kind of summarize for themselves, really, in terms of what they've learned and what they're going to be taking away from the session. Yeah, I really like that. I really like that. It's sort of it's a nice collaborative thing to do. And um, yeah, it's a good, I mean, why should the worker summarize? Why not let the client summarize? You're right. Yeah, yeah. So that's been a really informative um breakdown really of the solution focused process and I'm, I'm sure it's going to be useful to existing practitioners but i think particularly people encountering this this um this solution focused work for the first time so just before we go guy is there any kind of final thing that you'd you'd want to say before closing uh well it's sort of going back into the meat of the of, of the explanation actually alan i hope you don't mind no just, not at all it was just to sort of, just to sort of complete um, the, the follow-up session structure, uh, and just to encourage people to use scales. Really, um, so I said that in the follow-up session, uh, the starting point is progress, and you switch back to the future focus later. It's always useful to use the scale to punctuate that shift. Mm. Um, so in the first session it punctuated the shift from the future focus to the progress focus in a follow-up session having started with what's better with progress you could introduce the scale later in the session so going back to that scale between 0 and 10 10 is you've got what you hope for from this 0 is the furthest away point where are you now and then you can say okay and how would you know you were moving further up the scale maybe um is there more progress you'd like to make? Yeah, so how would you know you were moving further up the scale? And so it's a nice way to punctuate in a follow-up session the the shift from the progress focus to the future focus. One of the many ways, Alan, that scales, 0 to 10 scales, are incredibly useful things. Perhaps that'll be a nice, a nice note to sign off on. You've been listening to the Solution Focus podcast the official podcast of the UK Association for Solution-Focused Practice. To find out more about us, visit ukasfp.org. That's ukasfp.org. Now, our best hope is that you'll spread the word by sharing the podcast with your friends and on your social media. Even better would be to rate us on Apple Podcasts so it's easy for others to discover the show. And if you'd like to contact us or even be a guest on the show yourself, just write to podcast at ukasfp.org. That's podcast at ukasfp.org. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye.